Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming. It's nice to see so many uh, uh, friends from now and before, so uh, thanks very much. So, yeah, thanks Gary for the introduction. That's the first half of the talk done. I don't need to cover that again. Um, I, I wanted to talk about um, the work that we do, but put it into context a little bit, as Gary says. Um, so talk a little bit about our group, um, and then the challenges um, that we face at the moment and what's, what the challenges around automotive propulsion are doing to the engineering that we are doing now and the research that we're doing for the future. So that's our group. Uh, we've been established the Powertrain and Vehicle Research Centre uh, for 10 years now. Uh, in that time, we've attracted £15 million worth of funding, graduated 25 PhD students, and uh, we're growing steadily. That's not all of us, uh, but uh, there's about 42 of us in the group now. And it's an experimentally intensive group. That's one of our test cells. There's uh, four engine test cells, a chassis dynamometer, uh, transmission test cells, and a number of other facilities. So everything we do is, is uh, fundamentally rooted back to the experimental research. So that, that's the group. Uh, me, uh, that's when I was three, at the <laughs> Royal Show near Stoneley. And uh, uh, so I suppose I was always destined to go and work at Massey Ferguson. I didn't realise it at the time. In fact, I think I drove that tractor. It was still at the factory as a runaround many years later. I didn't want to do uh, automotive engineering when I was younger. I wanted to be a pilot, but my eyesight wasn't good enough. Um, but I think the... Uh, the engineering was always in me, particularly because I grew up in Coventry, and those are some of the uh, past and current automotive companies in Coventry. The, the whole city um, in the 70s and before that was, was shaped by the motor industry. Um, so I'm very aware of the benefits that the motor industry brought to the local economy, and it becomes part of you, it shapes you. So I think, in, in hindsight, I was always actually going to end up doing something along those lines. And as Gary says, I did a student apprenticeship at Matty Ferguson, um, <coughs> which was really, really enjoyable. A really great way to learn your trade, actually. I really um, couldn't recommend that highly enough. And I think it's a great shame that the student apprenticeship route has uh, declined over the years. We're working very hard to bring that kind of experience back, and we, spend, we send over half of our students out for a year out in industry. And I think that's the closest we can get at the moment to that uh, student apprenticeship experience. Um, but, yeah, I, I learned a huge amount, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, and I was a student at Bath. I graduated in 1990, when uh, the day after this photo was taken. Mike recognises himself as well. We, we, uh, it, it was a good place to be a student then. It's a better place to be a student now. It's improved over the years, but it was great then also. Went back to Massey Ferguson, as Gary said, and uh, was a transmission design engineer in track, working on transmissions to go in machines a bit like this. And again, a great place to spend the first early, the early part of your career. Um, when I came back to the university, uh, we started a long period of development of the experimental facilities. This test cell still exists, but it doesn't look anything like that now. Um, but the, the work to build that experimental underpinning for our work um, began then. So that's a bit about how I got here. Uh, so then if we talk about how we became a uh, car-driving society. Um, now, if you go back a few hundred years, any number of hundreds of years, back to a few thousand years ago, you would 
not have noticed much difference, clearly. Uh, it was a, uh, an economy that wasn't mechanized. And all of that time, we were harnessing energy in, in the, uh, uh, by burning fossil fuels. Um, but the Industrial Revolution obviously allowed us to burn those fuels and develop power. And that was the big change that the Industrial Revolution brought. And the, you could say um, uh, basic, I prefer to say fundamental uh, requirement is to burn a fuel and make work. And once you can do that, rather than just generate heat, then it unlocks a huge amount of potential. But it, um, really, the thermodynamics behind it are fairly straightforward um, in that, in as much as you want to burn the fuel at a high temperature and you want to reject heat at a low temperature. And the thermodynamics behind that do not change, and it's the fundamental we keep having to come back to when we're looking at the internal combustion engine. But that ideal uh, cycle that you see described there, you can't achieve in reality. We can get close to it, and everything that we do in internal combustion engines comes back to a really very nice and simple cycle that we can idealize like this, the, the Otto cycle. And um, in essence, the, the innovation here was that we, unlike in the steam engine where you just burn fuel at atmospheric pressure, we compress some air, we mix it with fuel, we burn the fuel so we get heat into the cycle, and then we take work out of the cycle as we expand it back down to a lower pressure. And then, unfortunately, to obey the second law of thermodynamics, you have to reject some heat. So a lot of heat has to be thrown out of the system and is then no longer useful. And the idea behind everything that we do is trying to maximize the area inside that shape. For a given amount of heat input, you want that area inside the shape to be as large as you can. And that everything really we do comes back down to that fundamental principle. Um, diesel engines don't follow quite the same cycle. It's very similar. It's essentially the Otto cycle but with the top cut off. And uh, the diesel cycle, although as I've just said, you want to maximize the area, and you can see straight away that you, if you cut the top off, you've reduced that. Overall, as a system, the diesel cycle has some really important advantages for efficiency. So um, that's fine. That's the thermodynamics underpinning what we do. In terms of a practical device, that's probably the first practical car that um, started to the motoring revolution, although it doesn't look much like that we drive today. That's the 1886 Benz patent motor car, Model 1. And that had a, a, a power of 0.75 brake horsepower, which isn't much by today's standards. It did about 28 miles per gallon, so it was relatively efficient, surprisingly. Um, now, we've come a long way since then. This, I would say, is a really good example of a general-purpose passenger car. And when I say general purpose, what I mean is it can do pretty much everything that you need it to do to a, um, a very uh, high degree of accomplishment. So it's fun to drive. Of course, it moves five people around in comfort. It's fuel efficient. It has room for luggage and uh, other things when you need it to. It's got a very long range. You can drive to Scotland without thinking. You just jump in and away you go. So that, I think, is a good benchmark for us as a, a general purpose passenger car. And... The um, development of that first motor car to cars like this has really changed everything about the way we live. Today, the average Briton travels uh, 6,500 miles a year in a car. 68% um, of us still commute by car every day. And it's uh, allowed us to develop the suburban way of life that we have today. It's changed the way that we're educated because we can travel to schools rather than be in a little village school. It's allowed us to generate uh, more, more individual uh, 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 mobility, 
generate wealth and underpins the way we live. So I think it's hard to underestimate the impact that the car has had on our society and how important it is to the, our continuing way of life. And you can see that if you look at the US where um, car ownership be, uh, grew the most rapidly over time, all over the 20th century, car ownership has increased. And now you get to the stage where there are about the same, there are more cars in America than there are licensed drivers, and nearly as many cars as there are people. It is starting to flatten off. There is a saturation point, and America has found that. The rest of the world hasn't found that saturation point yet. There is a lot of market growth potential left. Um, but in, in the US, that's the story. And I've, you're all familiar with the Ford Model T that started the mass production of motor cars and allowed it to be um, an accessible product that people could realistically aspire to owning. Um, Henry Ford, of course, behind that. He, um, he was quite a radical figure in his day. I think we forget how radical he was. In 1914, he doubled the wages of his workforce, over, more than doubled them in most cases, to $5 a day. And crucially, he didn't link that with a rise in productivity. He just said, I'm going to pay my people more. And it was quite a shrewd move, of course, because then they could go and buy one of his cars. And uh, it was, he, he wasn't completely... Um, uh, benevolent figure. But his, his quotation here is very striking. It's very different from the perceived role of big business today. He wanted to employ more people. He wanted to spread the benefits of the industrial system to the largest number of people possible and help them to improve their lives and so on. And therefore, he put the largest share of his uh, profits back into the company. So that's a quite a striking um, <coughs> outlook on life. And he got into trouble for that. He got taken to court and he lost quite a lot of money. But his fundamental outlook of growing the company and sharing the benefits, I think, is um, really under, underlines my view of the industry growing, growing up in Coventry. Um, it gave you a decent standard of living. You could have pride in your career, go work in the motor industry, have a house, a car, have holidays. It was a, a good way of life. And that, Henry Ford was the start of that, um, that process, really. Um, so that certainly reflected very strongly in life in the, in the West Midlands. Sadly, some, some of that has gone. Uh, well, a lot of that has gone. But you can see today, again, the motor industry is doing very, very well in this country. Um, well over a million people in Europe are employed by the motor industry, and it becomes um, a really fundamental need for Europe to keep growing that industry and keep strengthening it. Uh, more widely... Um, this map shows the uh, number of cars per 1,000 head of population. The dark green, there's over 600 cars per head of population. You'll notice that quite a lot of the world is a lot lower than that. So come back to what I said earlier, there's plenty of room for growth. And the thing to remember is that the people that are living in those parts of the world aspire to greater mobility for all the reasons that we've enjoyed it. So I don't see yet any powerful... Um, reason why that growth in the uh, motor car is, is going to slow down too much. Quite the reverse, in fact. But with that increased growth becomes problems. Uh, the way we live is changing. Uh, energy security and CO2 is a huge issue for us. Air quality and then finally affordability. How are we going to make this all happen? So if you look at societal changes first, that's Mexico City, and that underpins the fact that we are increasingly living in high-density urban uh, urban conglomerations they're bigger than cities they become mega cities and so on and uh, this is an increasing trend 
if you project forwards to the next 30 years or so, probably over 70% of us will live in uh, the urban environment. Um, the population is growing during that time, we're projecting. But interestingly, you notice this, uh, the number of people living in rural uh, areas is decreasing because there is a migration to the urban areas. It's not all just growth. Um, so that has some implications. come back to that in a minute. The implications of living in uh, ever greater urban density has quite a strong effect on uh, the amount of energy we use for transport. So it's quite a neat relationship. If you plot the energy consumption for transport on the y-axis and the urban density inhabitants per hectare on the x-axis, there's a pretty strong relationship. Well, firstly, you can say that the US cities are not very dense and they use a lot of energy for transport. Um, European cities are somewhere in the middle and then some really high density places like Hong Kong, the uh, energy uses for transport very low and uh, density very high. Now, as we move further down this graph into more dense urban environments, you would expect us to use much less energy for transport for all sorts of reasons. And that's going to have an impact on the kind of cars that we need and the kind of power uh, that we need in those cars. But at the same time, as I said, there's a decrease in the number of people living in the rural environment. And uh, if you look at the US, where this is equally true to anywhere else in the world, um, if you look at county by county, the ones that are the darkest red have had a large uh, population change in the, uh, the decade from the start of the millennium. Some cases down nearly 46% in, uh, in population. So there are still going to be people living in these areas, but they're getting somewhat more sparse in many cases. And we can't just think that we're all going to live in cities. We have to have a transport solution for the, uh, the rest of the world as well. And in some cases, that's going to become more of a problem. I think, though, we're still going to need the general purpose car. We're not all going to be driving around in city cars. There are other changes going on as well. Youth attitudes to car ownership. Now, subjectively, or um, if you interview young people, as Frost and Sullivan have done, there is, in the young people today, an increasing trend towards not owning a car. And even the start of a belief that it's not cool to own a car. And they don't enjoy the car buying process, the haggling with the dealers and so on. And you can see the uh, progressively less in engagement um, in a graph like this, which shows that the number of licensed drivers as a percentage of the population. In 1983, most young people had a driving license. In 2010, that proportion has dropped, and it's dropping further still. So we've got a changing demographic with changing attitudes to how they get about. And that's partly related to increasing urban densities, partly related to the growth of the internet. And they socialise in other ways nowadays. But it is, it's, it's changing the way we um, move around. Uh, another uh, global trend that is affecting the way cars are viewed is uh, road safety. Um, it's hard to believe, perhaps, but about one and a quarter million people each year die on the roads. And where you live has a big impact on your uh, risk from uh, being killed in a road accident. And Europe is safest by far. Now, all of the improvements that we've had in Europe to, um, to improve road safety are accessible to the rest of the world, and that process is happening. So you would expect the rest of the world to come to somewhat close to our, um, say, our road safety achievements. And the trend in the UK is still improving. Um, if we want to go further than we have 
today, and we do, want to make roads even safer, then one of the technologies that is being um, uh, increasingly topical is automation of vehicles. If you take control away from the human driver, you remove one of the weak links of the chain. And for that, for that one reason, there's a big interest in automation. A side benefit of that is that if you remove the human from the control system, you also have the opportunity to save a lot of fuel and be much more efficient. Um, I'm slightly skeptical about that. Um, the NTSA in America, uh, Traffic Safety Authority, have a categorization of levels of autonomy, zero being nothing. Uh, level four is fully autonomous, so say the Google car. You don't do anything, you just tell it where you want to go. I think it's more likely that um, most people will be driving a level three cars. Um, and that means that you can make it autonomous when you want to. If you're on a motorway, you want to go and read a book, you can press a button and uh, just go and read a book. I suspect, personally, um, that that will be a more acceptable level of automation for most people, uh, for all sorts of reasons. If we actually do go to level four, though, that has profound implications for the uh, uh, powertrain, because if you're in one of these, you don't need 400 horsepower. There's no benefit. You just get in, tell it where you want to go, and you're transported there. That doesn't seem that appealing to me as a concept. But the same ideas are behind this one that Mercedes have offered. They think they might be able to sell something like this in 2030. Um, it's just a living room on wheels, fundamentally. So if you had 400 horsepower in something like this, it's going to spill your drink. It's not going to help. So that will, if that becomes the predominant mode of transport, that's really going to change uh, what we're offering as a powertrain. I think, though, that everything up until this level will be very similar to what we have today that we will want increasing levels of performance and fun from the vehicle. We will still want high power. We will want it to be automated when we want it to be, but we want to choose that. So for the foreseeable future, I think that um, we will still need the sort of power levels that we have today. So to summarize that, the world's growing more wealthy and there are more of us. We're going to want more cars. Um, there may be a trend, or there is a trend towards urban living, which may reduce the power that we need in some of the cars but we still can't forget about the rural population. Uh, it's a big market and a big need. So we move on to energy security. Uh, that's a, a plot of global oil reserves. Uh, there's plenty of oil out there. It's distributed not evenly, although there are a lot of gray areas on the map, which means there may be reserves that we haven't tapped yet. If you look at the um, areas of the world that use that energy, there's quite a good correlation between the two. Uh, the darker areas use more energy it's where you would expect, it's where um, society has become more affluent, primarily. Uh, what I would say on this is that the areas that are blue and the areas that are using less energy, it won't stay like that. As we become more industrialized across the world, there will be more energy use across the world, clearly. And uh, there's going to be uh, increasing competition for resources. Uh, we already know that oil prices over the 20th century have been somewhat volatile. Uh, this is the price in historical currency, if you translate it to currency of, well, say, 2009, it makes it, okay, it got cheaper as the volume of production became uh, larger, and then there are a few notable spikes. That's 1973, people queuing for gasoline in the United States. Uh, that's someone in 1973. And uh, that first disruption, when um, OPEC restricted the supply in 1973, 
I think governments became very clear, if they weren't already, that they were maybe, you know, to use the Daily Mail headlines, three days from anarchy. If they can't keep the uh, population supplied with energy and fuel, and therefore food and water and all the rest of the things we take for granted, it's a seri very serious strategic risk. And that sort of changed the way that governments think fi fairly fundamentally. Uh, it changed the way car companies thought as well. They needed new fuel-efficient vehicles. And uh, I bought one of those 10 years after it was built, uh, Mark II Escort. It was a special fuel economy edition. It wasn't very exciting, and it didn't sell very many of them, but I liked it. Uh, but it, it was an important lesson for the industry. You can make a car fuel efficient, but that's not enough on its own. It's also got to be fun to drive and do all of the other things that traditional cars do. It can't just be fuel efficient. Um, the supply of oil and supply of energy in general is, remains very volatile. One of the things that has affected it most in recent years is the increased uh, shale gas supply. And that's pretty much revolutionized our thoughts about fossil fuels at the moment. And... Uh, if you combine that with some uh, unpredictable political situations around the world, um, the uncertainty over the supply of energy and the uncertainty over the uh, uh, large-scale political environment means that really trying to predict the oil prices is not very easy. And, and we know that the price so far this decade is, well, last year really, has dropped off the edge of a cliff. Um, what's going to happen in the future? It's really difficult to say. And you get people who try to predict the future come up with wildly, even within the same prediction set, come up with wildly different predictions as to what the future oil price is going to be. So security of supply is ever more of a problem. Um, we can't ignore it. Um, we can't ignore global warming either. This, I'm sure you're all familiar with the sort of hockey stick plot of temperatures in the uh, last thousand years and uh, the uptick with the Industrial Revolution. If you look further back than that, if you look into uh, uh, geological timescales, then, then CO2, this line here, has been all over the place, and we're at almost a record low for atmospheric CO2. Temperature has also moved all, all over the place. If you look at the Jurassic period, there were about seven times more CO2 in the atmosphere than there is today, and it was about three degrees hotter. So um, I think it's, it's pretty clear that if the, if the climate changes radically, it will have big implications for the way we live. I think the planet will be fine, but it might be rather tricky for us. So that's what we're really talking about. We're not talking about killing the planet. We're talking about making it very difficult for ourselves. Um, and that's um, not a force to be underestimated. Not everyone agrees, though. Uh, Nigel Lawson, I was trying to find a nice picture of him, but uh, this is how I remember him. <laughs> we need to bring spitting image back. If there's a time we need it, it's now. But uh, Nigel Lawson... Remember, Nigel Lawson was one of the people behind deregulating the banks and therefore laying the foundations for the global crash in 2008. But we're not going to hold that against him. Um, he is uh, chair, chair of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, and he's come and spoken at this university, and he's a, he's a persuasive speaker. Um, his view is that um, the science is uncertain. Okay, fair enough. And in the face of that uncertainty, um, he doesn't think it's a good idea to spend all of our time and energy decarbonizing the energy supply because it would have profound implications for the way we live. Um, half the US public doesn't even believe that global warming is man-made and 13% uh, of the scientists in America wouldn't say that either. But then again, 31% of the US public don't believe in evolution and 2% uh, of US scientists don't either. So you've got to be careful with the questions you ask people. 
Um, now, whether you agree with uh, Nigel Lawson or not, there is a big problem in terms of if we're not going to use the uh, fossil fuel reserves, you have to have this concept of unburnable carbon. If you want to keep to a 2 degrees C temperature rise or even a 3 degrees temperature rise, we think you can only use a fairly small proportion of the total fossil fuel <coughs> reserves. Remember, we don't really know how much is out there. But either way, you're going to have to leave an awful lot of it in the ground if we're going to control global warming according to our models at the moment. Okay, so what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that most of the known fossil fuel reserves are already on someone's balance sheet as an asset. And, if, and that's where it's accumulated around the world. And if you remove all of those assets from the balance sheet, then that's got really serious implications for the global economy. So you could say, well, it's not going to happen then. You're not going to voluntarily give up all of these assets, are you? You're not going to leave the oil in the ground, the coal in the ground. Um, and that, that's really the, the sort of background towards this, this um, scepticism about the, uh, the CO2 reduction debate. And really, you fall into one of four camps. Do you think that global warming is overstated, or do you think the predictions are accurate? Are we going to do some, nothing about it, or are we going to aggressively decarbonize? Now, depending which quadrant you feel you're in, uh, if we think it's an overstated problem and we don't do anything, that's great, business as usual, until at such time as the uh, supply is not up to the demand. Um, if, however, global warming is overstated and we take aggressive action to fix it, we can have some serious financial turmoil because of, uh, it would mean a fundamental change to the way we live. <coughs> if global warming predictions are accurate, and we aggressively decarbonize, we may be able to offset the worst of that impact, but there would still be big disruption because we have to change everything we do. Um, if, however, the predictions are accurate and we don't do anything, then that's the worst case scenario. Now, the people who are saying we shouldn't be decarbonizing are assuming that that's probably um, the most likely scenario, and that's why they're feeling that we shouldn't do anything. Anyway, so that's a slightly gloomy scenario. I'll come back to that in a, in a couple of minutes. Uh, I'll talk about what kind of fuels we have. Now, that's a plot showing specific energy density. That's energy per kilogram of fuels. This is energy per litre, so two measures of energy density. By both measures, liquid fuels are very, very good. Um, by some measures, hydrogen is very good, but not, uh, it's not very good by volume, but it's good by mass. The one thing that you can see is that all of the battery technologies, even the most advanced battery technologies, do not compare at all well with liquid fuels. And that, in one slide, really sums up the challenge that we've got for mobile applications. And this slide summarizes some work that Shell have been doing, looking at the future energy market, looking at compatibilities of various fuel types with different modes of transport. And the only one that's fully compatible with all modes of transport is liquid fuels. Aircraft have got a particular problem because uh, really only liquid hydrocarbons are going to meet their needs for fuels. Um, the rest of them... To greater or lesser degree, you can adapt. You can use various uh, fossil fuels. You might even be able to use uh, electric uh, energy for cars and light trucks. Rail, of course, is a good match. Um, but the, the one fuel that stands out is liquid fuels. I say um, it's important to say that air transport, cheap, affordable uh, passenger transport, is changing the way we live now in the way that the car changed the way we live in the 20th century. And uh, if we can't do that anymore because we don't have access to liquid fuels, that will be a fairly fundamental change. But um, I think that there is an escape route. 
Audi are already producing fuel that they call e-gas. They're making compressed natural gas from completely renewable uh, route. They're taking renewable energy, they're electrolysizing water, they're making methanol by combining that hydrogen with CO2 from uh, industrial processes, and they're making CNG. And they're putting that into the uh, gas distribution network in Germany. So when you fill up your Audi with CNG, they'll make the equivalent amount of renewable um, CNG, completely uh, independent of fossil fuel usage. There's a British company called Air Fuel Synthesis who are looking at the same kind of processes. And uh, Audi are also amongst a number of companies that are looking at uh, biodiesel from uh, biological reactors like this. So I think the technology is out there. Absolutely, it can be done. The challenge is scaling up and making it economical. But I'm an optimist in that respect. And if you are an optimist, you can look at the same plot as we looked at for the uh, fossil fuel debate, and we can fill it in slightly differently. That's always going to be a big problem. We must avoid that scenario. I think, actually, the people who say we shouldn't decarbonize are underestimating the problem about the uh, uh, restricted supply of oil, and we should take it much more seriously. I think that if we believe the global warming uh, predictions, then if we can get a decent renewable supply <coughs> of liquid fuel, then we can easily avoid, well, not easily, but we can avoid uh, catastrophe. And uh, if it turns out that global warming is uh, overestimated, I don't really think that's a downside, because what we'll do is we'll uh, have more easily available energy, we'll be able to generate more economic growth, and maybe spread the benefits of that economic growth more widely. So I think if and it's a big if we can get these renewable fuels to be economically viable as oil prices rise in the future, then I think that we'll be okay. Um, that's a big if. So just to summarize that, uh, supply and demand is volatile, and it boils down to synthetic fuels. Some people like to call them uh, liquid sunshine. Other people like to call them liquid electricity. I think they're trying to capitalize on the electricity debate. But synthetic fuels, I think there's potential there, and we need to... It's really the, the challenge for us at the moment to get those fuels to be economically viable. Another big challenge, air quality. Air quality seems a bit intangible, but if you can remember, I can't remember, I hasten to say, London in 1952, um, we had some pretty um, bad periods of smog, particularly in the, in the depth of winter. In our, and this wasn't to do with the motor car, this is to do with burning coal and all sorts of horrible... Uh, ways that we heated our, our cities. But the effects were quite stark. Over that period, December 1952, the death rate in London went up dramatically. And while this says 10,000, some later revisions to that say 12,000 people died extra to what you would normally expect in London during that period of the smog in December 1952. If you can do integration on the spot, you'll notice that the area under that curve is not 10,000 people. But anyway. Um, People that have studied this episode say that that is an underestimate, probably. And that's pretty stark and brings it into context. And it hasn't gone away. It has in London, but globally, too many people are still dying from air pollution. Maybe 7 million people a year, the World Health Organization estimates. And that's from heart attacks and <coughs> the other res and respiratory problems. It's seldom the only factor, but it's a contributory factor in a lot of deaths. And it's important to say that that's not all about the car by any means. If you look at uh, exposure to particulates, the smaller kinds of particulates that are the most harmful, it doesn't correlate with the car usage. It correlates to places that they still cook with solid fuel and uh, 
where there are other issues around uh, air quality. But um, you can't deny that it is, it's an issue and it needs to be tackled. Uh, if you look at uh, NO2, which is another of the major problems that we have, that does correlate more with where we've got industrial activity. If you zoom in on Europe, it suggests that we're not doing enough, really, because we haven't got enough NO2, but London's a bit of a hot spot. Um, if you look in, in more detail at uh, NO2 in London, then clearly the main transport links are um, a hotspot for NO2. Uh, that's because there isn't very much heavy industry in London, so the, by comparison, the transport links show up. But um, it has got the attention of the policymakers in Europe, and uh, they are uh, engaged in legal action with the member states that are breaching the air quality uh, rules. And that, in turn, is having an effect on the, the, uh, the big city authorities. Uh, the mayor of Paris has said she wants diesels out of the city by 2020. Uh, Boris has said something slightly more pragmatic. He wants to levy a, an extra tariff on everyone who drives a diesel into the city. Um, but he's, he is at least acknowledging that there is uh, an alternative technology that is clean. And so he's, he's hedging his bets somewhat. Um, I'll come on to more about the air quality from uh, uh, the engines in a minute. But if you look at some of the reasons behind it, the reasons that we're not getting the air quality that we think we should is because, well, it's our fault really, we don't drive uh, as smoothly and predictably as perhaps we could. This is uh, data logged from a journey from Stroud to Bath. It's quite varied. A bit of cruise control in the middle, but generally the speed's up and down, engine torque is up and down. Um, engine speed is, is very volatile. And uh, if you, by comparison, this is that same data, engine speed and engine torque on a plot. If you look at the European drive cycle, which is the cycle we're all tested against when you sell a new car, it's nowhere near as aggressive as real world. Even the new cycle that will take effect from 2017 is not as aggressive as the real world driving. And there are big differences between drivers. This is Leon, he's in the back, in the red. Red dots, this is driving down to Exeter and back in a VW Charan. Uh, I thought I'd find out uh, what the car can do. So this is the maximum torque that the car can produce. Um, so I don't think I was over-aggressive. I was just driving it fairly normally. But there are clearly big differences between different drivers. And you have to factor that into account. And when you do all of that, when you look at what people really do, and you compare that with how we measure engine performance on a drive cycle, you get plots like this, which are quite scary. That is what the legislation says we should be doing in terms of uh, NOx, 0.5 grams per kilometre. That's what we measured on the road from vehicles built in year 2000. The legislation has got much better. It's now this tiny little blob here. But what you measure on the road is still pretty bad. Um, and the reason that the uh, actual vehicle performance is not following the legislation is exactly what I showed you before. People are much more aggressive in real life than they are on the drive cycle. The drive cycle was never meant to be real life. It was a metric to allow comparison of one to another. But we're, we're treating it as if it's a measure of real life, and it's not that at all. So um, what we are doing, though, is, is increasing the um, uh, requirements of legislation to clean up the exhaust. And it's partially effective. Euro 6, is uh, the latest emission standards, are very tough. But when you measure what happens to Euro 6 vehicles on the real world, they're not performing. Uh, the Euro 6 limit is this green line. These are a bunch of, uh, in terms of emissions, NOx. These are a bunch of Euro 6 vehicles being driven in real-world driving. And they're all 
apart from this green one here, they're all above the limit, some of them massively over the limit. And, uh, and you think, well, yeah, but why would they be uh, complying? This, what we're doing here is assessing them against future legislation. And they weren't designed for future legislation, they were designed for today's legislation. But the European uh, legislators can see this data, they don't like it, and they're doing something about it. What they're doing about it is they're saying that vehicles have to comply in real-world driving, not just on a drive cycle, but in real world. And um, that means that all of these vehicles will have to come down from where they are now to below that green line. And that's quite a big change. It's a fundamental change for the industry. And the technology to do that, in petrol engines, it's perhaps relatively straightforward. The engines will have to, have to be designed to use a three-way catalyst, as they are today, but use it over the full operating range of the engine. So there are some implications for engine design, but it's, it's possible to do it. In the future, we're likely to need a particulate filter, even on gasoline engines. But it, again, it's doable. It makes the technology more expensive, but it's possible. Diesel vehicles, again, it's possible. Uh, we already have diesel particulate filters and a range of pollution control devices on diesel engines. Uh, one thing you don't solve on a diesel engine today very much is oxides and nitrogen. The technology is out there to do it, and we will increasingly have to deploy it. And the main tool that we have at our disposal is selective catalytic reduction, which means putting ammonia into the exhaust. That's a reducing agent that allows, allows us to get rid of uh, oxides and nitrogen. And uh, some vehicles today already have that. That means you have an after-treatment system that looks a bit like this. So the engine is up here somewhere producing the uh, exhaust. You have an oxidation catalyst. You have another oxidation catalyst that also can, in some circumstances, get rid of oxides and nitrogen. You have a filter for the particulates. And then you have a selective catalytic reduction system that has the ammonia or urea injection. <coughs> so quite a compli complicated exhaust system. costs money. It takes some development. But it can be done. So in summary... Air quality, it's a clear need. No one can argue about the need for air quality improvements. Um, the legislators, in fact, because it's topical, they're more concerned at the moment about air quality in Europe than they are about CO2, which is quite a reversal from only a couple of years ago. The technologies are out there. The legislation is being introduced to ensure that they're used. And then the focus will return to CO2. Um, and it will be business as usual reducing CO2. But this is a particular problem we have to get through in the next few years. So that's, that's air quality. Now, then it comes back to CO2 and it comes back to affordability. How are we going to make efficient cars and make them affordable? Mass production, of course. But if you look at the technologies that we're using, they have a cost implication. This is a plot of the additional cost uh, for various kinds of technologies in vehicles over the next uh, well, 15, 20 years. Um, what they're projecting, this is some Ricardo AEA study, they're projecting that conventional uh, petrol engines will get, get more expensive as the re requirements for air quality and efficiency get more stringent over the years. Uh, the average combustion engine also will increase, diesel engine will increase. They're projecting that uh, hybrid vehicles will get somewhat cheaper and then stabilise around 2020. These group of vehicles up here, plug-in hybrids, battery electric and fuel cell, they're literally off the graph at the moment. They might start to come down... <coughs> We're not seeing the prices converge anytime soon. And that has got some really important implications for, remember I was talking about the general purpose passenger car. These are not general purpose passenger cars. They're too expensive and they're too limited in terms of their capabilities for the foreseeable future. 
So what we need to be concentrating on are these here. This is where the mass market is. We need to improve these vehicles if we want to see the maximum possible impact of the work that we're doing. Now, the first of those hybrid technologies, are, are just um, this isn't a talk all about hybrids. Hybrids you can talk for hours about. There are infinite variety of hybrid powertrain arrangements. They all come back to the same idea. You have the combustion engine in the middle here, and the hybrid technology, the electric uh, motor, the batteries and so on, allow you to manage that engine better. So that you burn fuel when you need to, you don't burn it when you don't need to, and you keep the engine operating at its most efficient time. The other big benefit they have is it allows you to capture uh, braking energy that would otherwise be burnt up as uh, heat in the brakes. So those two benefits, improving the management of the engine, reducing uh, waste energy in the brakes. Everything else that we're going to talk about in IC engines is applicable to a hybrid system. If you look at the IC engine, this is a Sankey diagram. I think these are great diagrams. It shows 100% of the energy coming in on the left in the fuel. And where does it all go? Maybe a quarter of it is useful work that you can do, you can drive things with. Maybe 5%, perhaps more in some cases, is friction. 30% uh, of the energy goes to the coolant, 40% to the exhaust. That's very round terms, and it changes enormously according to the technologies used. But it has to, in a sense, to obey the second law of thermodynamics. You have to throw some heat away, otherwise it, it breaks the thermodynamic <coughs> law, it won't work. Um, what we need to do is minimise that amount of heat. So that comes back to the thermodynamics, the uh, Otto cycle and the diesel cycle. And it's important to put into context everything that we're doing, the effect it has on that basic thermodynamic cycle. And you remember I said we want to minimise the amount of heat we throw away, and we want to maximise the area inside that shape, which maximises the efficiency. So that's a stylized one. You can't really do that in real life. This is um, uh, PV diagram, pressure and volume inside uh, an engine that we're running at the university. It's a spark ignition engine. It's meant to look like the Otto cycle. It doesn't, for all sorts of reasons. Here, when we're compressing the air, heat escapes. The air gets hot, some of the heat escapes. When we burn the fuel, it doesn't burn it instantaneously. There's some time associated with burning the fuel. That robs some area from this graph as well. When we've got the hot gas expanding, more heat escapes. And all of these are inefficiencies. Down here, we throw the uh, waste heat away in the exhaust system. And then this loop down the bottom here, there's a, there's a bit of the graph that wasn't on the stylized graph. This is the breathing. We have to suck air into the engine. We have to blow it out of the engine. That takes work to do. This is an engine operating at maximum power. So this, the throttle is wide open. The pumping loop is quite small. When you throttle the engine, when you restrict the power, you waste a lot of power in the throttle. This loop down the bottom gets quite large, and it's a parasitic load. So we need to minimize that parasitic load. And the good news is there are a whole range of technologies we can use to improve the shape of that PV diagram, to make it larger, to reduce the amount of heat we throw away. And here's a bit of a busy plot, but this is a whole range of technologies that we can deploy on internal combustion engines. And the fuel saving potential is on the x-axis, and the cost added cost to the vehicle on the uh, y-axis. And I just plotted a polynomial curve through all of those, and there's a relationship, as you would expect, diminishing returns. The more fuel you want to save, the more expensive it gets. The ones we should be interested in are these ones under here, because it's not a charity, it's a business making cars. You've got to make a car and be able to sell it, otherwise you don't have a business to, to make any more improvements to. And the ones that come out particularly good, that's, that save more fuel than you might expect for the price, Weight reduction, fairly aggressive weight reduction, 30%. And Jaguar Land Rover are one of the companies that are taking the most time and effort to reduce the mass of their vehicles. Everybody's doing it, though, but uh, Jaguar are starting from a position where 
they make heavy, luxurious vehicles. So there's lots of opportunity to put aluminium into the vehicles to reduce the weight. Um, <coughs> another one that looks really good is downsizing. Um, so what's downsizing? Um, downsizing is trying to make this system more efficient by um, avoiding the inefficient parts of the operation. In particular, this part here. I mentioned pumping loop. Um, if you use an engine that's too big, you have to throttle it, and that wastes power. So downsizing, in essence, is using a smaller engine to do the same job. And I've used this graph before unapologetically. This shows engine speed, and it's effectively torque. It's mean effective pressure. What we're seeing is contours of fuel efficiency. The, the higher up here you go, the more efficient the engine is because it's working harder and you're throttling it less. If you halve the size of the engine from, say, 2.4 litres to 1.2 litres, in the same vehicle, it has to work twice as hard, and it will move from this inefficient area to this more efficient area. So that bit is quite easy. Anybody can put a half, uh, a 1.2 litre engine in a VW Passat, and they'll save some fuel. But it won't be very much fun. It'll be like my Ford Escort from 1975. It, it does half the job. It doesn't do the other half of the job, make it attractive. Um, downsizing, really, is doing both at the same time. Making a small engine, but making it fun to drive. Get the same power as we had from the big engine. And Ford are probably uh, the best example of that around at the moment. They've got a one-litre engine in the Ford Focus uh, and numerous other vehicles now, Fiesta and even the, um, the B-Max. So it's um, getting ever larger vehicles that they're putting this engine into. It's a one-litre engine, but it replaces the 1.6-litre, maybe even the 1.8-litre engine in terms of power output. That's what happens if you take it apart. It's all made of aluminium and steel and relatively easy... Uh, cheap materials, easily available, cheaply uh, uh, manufactured. It's a very good cost-benefit ratio in terms of the fuel it saves. There's a lot of engineering work goes into making that work, but when you've done the engineering, you've got a good mass-market solution. goes into a vehicle like this, uh, one-litre engine, 100 brake horsepower, 60 miles per gallon. So it's in no way compromised. It's a thoroughly practical uh, general-purpose passenger car. So, yeah, Ford leading the way, uh, with that engine, but it's, they're not the only people doing it. It's, it's um, a universal trend in the industry. So this, over the next uh, 10, well, five years, actually, 2020 will be here fairly soon. Um, the proportion of turbocharged engines in the gasoline market will go probably from about 14% today to over a third of engines will be turbocharged by only five years' time from now. Um, and that's where most of the growth is coming from. You see this non-turbocharged bit, it's static, maybe even decreasing. And if you look at the engine size, this is displacement of the engine in uh, CC. And in America, it's particularly notable that it, the engines are getting smaller and smaller. And that trend, if anything, is accelerating. People are putting smaller engines in vehicles and turbocharging them to get the fun-to-drive bit. Um, and it... It varies according to which territory you're working in, but globally, engines are getting smaller, and this is uh, downsizing is business as usual, pretty much. A lot of the research we do here in, in the university is feeding into that technology and improving that technology and allowing that progress to accelerate. Uh, in particular, that's a turbocharger running at different speeds and loads. If I just replay that. Obviously, um, when you burn more fuel, you make more waste heat. The turbocharger, which... Uh, captures the waste energy in the exhaust, gets hotter. And we have to understand what that does to the efficiency of the machine, what the turbocharger 
uh, does to the efficiency of the engine as a whole system. And those system interactions are rather complex and need a, um, a lot of analysis and a lot of experimental work. But that can lead to dramatic improvements. Um, this is the Ultraboost engine, a project led by Jaguar Land Rover with Lotus and with Shell and with Ricardo, uh, Imperial College London, doing the turbo machinery. The engine was running at Bath. Uh, we don't usually run with the lights out, but it looks nice when you do. Uh, this is a two-litre engine designed to replace the five-litre engine in uh, the current Range Rover product. And it produces the same power across the whole engine speed range as the five-litre engine from something that's only 40% of the size. And if you do that, you save about 35% of the fuel in the vehicle. Uh, it's not easy. It's incredibly challenging from every respect, but the benefits are worth it. And when you've done it, again, it's made of iron and steel and aluminium. It's a mass-produced vehicle, but it's very fuel efficient. So this is the PV diagram that we had from the conventional engine. By comparison, that's the PV diagram from the ultra-boost engine, this downsized engine. Uh, rather than, well, I'll put both on the same axis so you can compare them. Uh, we're running, instead of running at about 40 bar, we're running at about 150 bar. You know, it's, the pressures in the engine are colossal for a petrol engine. It's unbelievably uh, high uh, pressures and temperatures compared to what we're used to. Um, way, way above the melting point of the material the engine's made out of. Um, in addition, you see this relatively slow combustion here, the heat release. It's much faster at those temperatures and pressures. It's getting much more like the ideal Otto cycle. The thermodynamics are much better. Um, so, and we've reduced the size of the pumping loop in most conditions to um, much less than it was in the 5-litre engine. You have to throttle the 5-litre engine almost all the time in real use, and the 2-litre engine gives you huge benefits. There are still things we can do to improve that. Uh, this is the, that's the engine. It has a big supercharger, a big turbocharger. Um, if we were to subtly alter that arrangement and have a variable speed drive between the supercharger and the engine, that gives us even better improvements in terms of the drivability, the fun-to-drive aspect. We can get that very high power much more quickly than you can with a, a fixed-speed drive. Uh, and we're doing a project exactly in that area, not on the ultra-boost engine, this is on a Ford engine, but we're looking at a variable-speed uh, drive between the engine and the supercharger, in this case the centrifugal supercharger, and that will allow us to get very high boost pressures very quickly, get the best economy and the best performance from the smallest possible engine. So um, that's downsizing. What else would we like to do in, t in order to prove the th improve system efficiency? Want well, low friction. That seems a pretty sensible thing to do. Uh, Semi-adiabatic operation. <coughs> we'll that in a minute. Want to capture some of that waste heat and do something useful with it. We might want to do something with turbocharging, and we'd like it to be clean as well, by the way. Um, so a low friction engine, what does that do to the thermodynamics? Nothing really, but what it does do is it means that all of that work, or as much as possible of that work that you're developing inside here, it gets to do something useful outside of the engine. If you have a high friction engine, you get a high proportion of that work. It doesn't actually get outside the engine. It's just there turning the engine over. Um, so how would you design a low friction engine? Well, there are lots of techniques that we've worked on here at the university. Um, there are some relatively novel arrangements of engine that are particularly good for friction. This was the comma TS3, an opposed piston two-stroke. Uh, hard to visualize from that diagram. This one's a bit clearer. The combustion's happening in the middle there. And this looks really improbable uh, mechanical arrangement underneath. Why would anyone do that? Uh, but there are some good reasons for doing it. It's an inherently low friction 
not low mass, admittedly, but low friction design because the mechanics of the system are quite favourable. Lo very low angles, very low uh, angle of this connecting rod from the bore. It's a, it's a good basic design. Um, my final year project and Mike Deacon worked on an engine like this. That was us testing it in 1990. It wasn't quite a clean diesel at that stage. Um, but uh, it ran. This was the day before graduation. It, it did run. Um, and it was low friction. It was very good fuel efficiency. So, come back to the um, uh, um, losses in the engine. This is clearly the place you should look at. What are you going to do about that? Um, if you look at the PV diagram, most of the heat loss happens here when you've got hot gas and you're expanding it. So, how can you reduce that? Well, you you can run the engine hotter. You can try and reduce the, the losses from the engine by reducing heat transfer inside it. People have tried this in the past. didn't work particularly well, but doesn't mean we shouldn't try again. It has really difficult, serious implications. If you run the whole engine much hotter, then you need uh, insulating coatings, you need more expensive materials, you need better lubrication. All of these things we can address as engineers, and they will affect the thermo basic thermodynamics. They will improve the thermodynamics by increasing the volume in the PV diagram you're still going to have quite a lot of waste heat in the exhaust, and we'd like to do something with that. Uh, ranking cycle, or steam cycle, usually we see in much bigger equipment, the sort of things that you see in power stations. But you can scale it down. This is the thermodynamic cycle. This is um, entropy, which is a measure of ir irreversibility in this case, and temperature. Uh, and if you plot steam on that, in the middle here, you have a mixture of water and steam. Here it's all water, here it's all steam. So if you boil it, you move from this liquid region across this liquid vapour region into the uh, superheated region. And the ranking cycle is an attempt to get the most thermodynamically efficient and power-dense cycle from a cycle where we make some steam, expand the steam through a turbine to get power, condense it again and go round again. So that's how the steam engine that I showed you very much earlier on in the presentation works. But you can combine the two. This is some work BMW have been doing take the waste heat from the exhaust <coughs> up here and to progressively through the system take a lot of that heat out, make steam and use the steam to do some useful work. Um, it's a bit of a challenge. If you want to do that properly and get the most possible work out of it, you're implying very high pressures, maybe 30 bar, even higher in the steam system and very high temperatures. You want to really use the maximum temperature in the system. The exhaust is about 1,000 degrees from a petrol engine. You'd like to go as close to that as you can to get the maximum power from the system. That's quite challenging as a piece of design. But if you do that, you've got the opportunity to take low-grade heat from the cooling system, uh, heat from the cooling jacket of the engine, more heat from the exhaust of the engine, and to extract a fair amount of power from that waste heat. So that's waste heat. Turbo compounding addresses this bit. All of the energy that we throw away in the exhaust of the engine. It's quite topical recently because Formula One have been doing it. They use the waste energy in the exhaust to drive a turbine and they make electricity from that. Um, that isn't quite what we do on the road, but it has some uh, useful implications. Mercedes have been doing it better than anyone else, by the way, because they had uh, organized their turbo machinery better than anybody else. But even though that's fairly exotic, um, there are much more everyday occurrences of turbo compounding. Uh, Scania have been offering a device historically for a long time. If you take the engine away, you can see it more clearly. 
So you've got the conventional turbocharger here, and you've got another turbine here, and some gearing, and the power that this turbine generates is mechanically coupled back to the crankshaft. So you get some useful work from the exhaust, put it back into the crankshaft, and depending how well you do that, you can get maybe anything up to 20% extra power out of the system by doing that. That's a bit challenging, but you should be able to get maybe 10, 15% if you really work hard. Uh, I, I'm contractually obliged to put a picture of this engine in every presentation I do because it's my favourite engine. This is the Napier Nomad, uh, which was an aircraft engine from the 1950s, and that took turbo compounding <coughs> to its extreme, a very, very large power turbine. The version before this had an even uh, larger system uh, that had a, a, um, an afterburner to generate more heat to put through the power turbine. That's probably a bit complex for a road car engine, but um, you can take those ideas and you can put all of the ideas I've just talked about together and you get a rather large, expensive, complex system, but very thermodynamically effective overall. So if you take a low friction engine, you take advanced turbo compounding, which means that it's connected back to the crankshaft. You can take some reheat if you want to, burn some more fuel, put it through the turbine. Uh, you can have the waste energy recovery system, a ranking cycle system, bolted on the outside. Well, no, not bolted on. If you bolt it on, it's not going to work. You've got to design it like that from the very start to make it work properly. So there's plenty of potential for us as mechanical engineers to improve the efficiency of the internal combustion engine. Most of these weren't very effective over the European drive cycle because the European drive cycle used very low powers. You remember, it wasn't very aggressive. Now with um, the real-world fuel economy measurements and emissions measurements, we're using much more of the engine speed load range. And the benefits of these kind of technologies become much more obvious. So I'm anticipating and looking forward to a resurgence in some of these ideas that we know we can do but haven't been cost-effective in the past. And I think the opportunity is there for us now as mechanical engineers to really make a difference, to get towards the kind of fuel efficiencies that you can get um, in a fuel cell system when it's well optimized, maybe above 60% thermal efficiency. I think that we can do that from a me mechanical uh, solution like this. And if you can do that, it will be inherently low cost, suitable for the mass market and get much more impact in the sort of general purpose passenger cars that we, we still need. So I think in the long term, fuel cells are a good technology, especially the high temperature solid oxide fuel cells. But I think in the meantime, there's an awful lot of extra potential to get from the internal combustion engine. Uh, if you go even further, then we can start to change the way we burn the <coughs> fuel. Uh, this low temperature combustion concept gets to the heart of where we get the, the nasty pollutants inside the engine. So don't clean them up on the way out. Burn the fuel in a clean way inside the engine. So if you plot temperature, flame temperature, at where you're actually burning the fuel on the x-axis, an equivalence ratio, so that's saying, is there too much air or not enough air? One, equivalence ratio of one means there's exactly enough air to burn all the fuel. Uh, if you go less than one, you're, you're lean, you've got more air. If you go greater than one, there's not enough air for the amount of fuel. You're burning a rich mixture. Now, different parts in the diesel engine cover all of those uh, different combustion regimes from very lean to very rich inside the combustion chamber. So you've got the opportunity to make soot and oxide and nitrogen. Uh, in a petrol engine, it's a more uniform combustion, but the problem is it's very high NOx. The benefit is you can clean it in an after-treatment system more easily in a petrol engine. But there are a number of combustion researchers, of which we're not one. We're not combustion researchers at this university. We can use their systems as part of an overall system, but that's not, our, not the science we do here. 
But if you can, if you can avoid both the area that produces high soot and the area that produces high NOx, then you can potentially get a very clean burn. There are big challenges. Getting enough air into the system, controlling that system, it's basically very difficult to control because in a diesel engine you control using the time at which you inject the fuel. Petrol engine you control that by the time at which you make the spark. These low temperature combustion engines, you only have indirect levers to control what's happening inside the cylinder. It's very difficult. They're also not very power dense. You can't get the same power density as you can today from either petrol or diesel engines. So it's a big challenges, but if you can get it right, there's a lot, lot of potential to improve the uh, combustion system itself. So to sum up that, uh, affordability is important, will always be important for mass market vehicles. It's not a charity. You've got to make money to sell the vehicle, to make more vehicles, to get the benefits. We need high efficiency combined with low purchase price. And I've put taxation in there because if anyone thinks that they are going to drive uh, electric vehicles forever and, and it won't cost anything to recharge them, they're wrong because somehow the government will have to get their taxation revenue. So if electric vehicles do become much more widespread, you'll see a change in the way we're taxed on uh, electricity for electric vehicles, almost certainly, or another way to get their money back. So to make some overall conclusions, the world has changed a lot, but we still need affordable, efficient, and clean general-purpose vehicles. General-purpose means your basic your forward-focused type vehicle. I think very strongly that the car industry is a force for social good. If you run the car industry properly, it helps share the benefits of an industrialized society amongst a large number of people. And that's a model that we still have in this country. We need to regain more of in this country. And we need to bring some of the manufacturing of vehicles back from overseas and do it here. We do a lot of the R&D and we, do, we build a lot of engines. Um, we build some vehicles, but I think we should be looking to build more and working very hard to do that. We really need, as a society, a replacement for liquid fossil fuels for lots of reasons. If, well, it's a big if, if we want to carry on living as we have done over the last 100 years. There are lots of people who would prefer we move back to the 17th century or before. I'm not one of them. I like the way we live now, and I think we have the opportunity to keep doing that, but we need to uh, come up with an answer to this problem. And it's, it's potentially doable. Uh, we will continue to use mechanically dominated powertrains and we will electrify as part of that solution but I'm rather sceptical that large batteries are a big part of that solution. I think electrification with small batteries and use as power management in a hybrid vehicle, yes, that's uh, very sensible. Uh, so I mentioned a possible arrangement, variable compression ratio, two-stroke opposed piston engine, turbo compounding... Uh, so there are lots of things that we can do to make that happen. And I am very optimistic. I've always, always been an optimist, and I don't see any reason to change now. Okay, uh, I think that's all I wanted to say at this point, but I'm really happy to take any questions. Okay.